Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. While you're turning to that chapter, I'll just point out that if you do use the outline, the sermon outline that's in your bulletin today, disregard it. One of the uh, advantages I had of having a week's vacation since the last time I preached is I had more time to think about the passage. Uh, off and on during vacation, I ended up going a different direction with the outline, so that will only lead you astray, so just disregard the outline. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, I'll be looking at verses 22 through 38. Please give your attention to God's word. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus, the infant Jesus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In the popular book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, it tells of a supercomputer that took seven and a half million years to create which was assigned to answer one question, basically to come up with the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And the answer it came up with was 42. 42. You can go home now. You know the whole purpose and answer to life in general. No, actually, I think the author's point in including that in the story was how frivolous and useless it is to try to find meaning and purpose in the universe. I think he was actually mocking the idea 
that there could be any ultimate meaning or purpose. I was thinking about that as I listened to the worldviews. That's really what I do. It's my hobby is to listen to media and entertainment and, and what they're saying out there in the culture around us. Analyzing what, what do they feel their purpose is? What, what are the ideas that are out there in our culture for what is the ultimate meaning and purpose of life? And generally, my perception is that there are two answers to that. One is the nihilist answer, which is there is no purpose. Science is the ultimate reality. Material world is all there is. And there is no meaning or purpose, no higher purpose in life. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. The other prevalent, I think that's hard to live out that worldview and to acknowledge that there is no purpose. So the other popular, I think, much more popular view that I hear in the culture is the existentialist view, which is you make your own purpose. You create your own truth, you create your own reality, and you find your own purpose in your own reality. Those are the two choices that are offered out there in the world. We come here to the church because as Christians, we believe that God has revealed the purpose to the universe. God has revealed the purpose for his church, and God has revealed the purpose for each one of us as individuals. He's given it to us. He's revealed it through his word. But as I think about that, and as I interact with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and as I look at my own life, I realize that too much of the time we act like nihilists or existentialists. We fall into despair. We lose hope. And we start to act like our life doesn't have any purpose to it. Or we fall into the mainline thinking of our culture and think that we create our purpose. It's all about what we're doing, where we're going. What we decide is the ultimate destiny and end of our lives. There's always that disconnect between what we say we believe and how we actually live our lives. Well, this morning, we are looking at the epilogue, so to speak, to all these exciting narratives about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first couple chapters of the gospel according to Luke. And in this section that we're looking at, we have an encounter between Jesus, the infant Jesus, and his parents, and two probably elderly, one of them we're certain, certain was old from what the text tells us, the other one probably was old based on what he says, two elderly witnesses to the meaning and purpose of the birth of Jesus Christ. Their names are Simeon and Anna, people who we would know nothing about if they were not mentioned in this passage. In this event, this celebration that is recorded here, we see that they find their purpose. They meet their purpose in life when they meet the infant Lord Jesus. This passage has the prayer slash song of Simeon. It's of all this, the prayer slash songs we've been looking at of Elizabeth and, and of Zechariah, of Mary, the angels. Here's the last one. It's given to us in poetic form. We don't know if it was sung. It may probably, at least initially, was just a prayer, but a spirit-given prayer, a Holy Spirit-given prayer given to Simeon. And in his prayer or his song, whatever you want to call it, we see his understanding of the importance of the birth of Jesus Christ. He says, and it's called the nunc dimittis. We preachers like to throw out Latin whenever we can. It makes you think more of us. But 
it, it's called, just because you know from the history of the church, from the history of liturgy, each one of these songs has a Latin name to it, and the Latin name is taken from either the first or the first couple of words of each of these songs or prayers. And in this case, it's called the Nucleus Dimittis in Latin because in the Latin version of the New Testament, it's the first two words that come out of Simeon's mouth, which are, Lord, dismiss. Lord, dismiss, or now dismiss, sorry, now dismiss. Well, Simeon, he takes the infant Jesus, and again, he's probably about a month and a half old at this point. He takes him into his arms, and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I think, in essence, what Simeon is saying is, Lord, I can die happy now, for I have met my purpose. I have found what I've waited my whole life for. I'm holding my salvation in my arms. Everything else that Simeon may have done or not done, and we know nothing of the rest of his life, was meaningless without this encounter with the infant Jesus and all that it meant for his life. In order to understand what's going on here in this event, you have to go back to the Old Testament law. Basically, two rituals are taking place at the same time. The first ritual at the temple in Jerusalem, where Mary and Jesus have brought the infant Jesus, Mary and Joseph have brought the infant Jesus, is called the presentation. The presentation goes back to the Passover, the original Passover, when Moses, by God's calling, led the people of God out of hundreds of years of bondage and slavery in Egypt under the iron boot of Pharaoh. And remember when Pharaoh would not let the people of God go by God's decree through Moses, God sent plagues upon Egypt. And they became increasingly destructive to the nation of Egypt. But the last one was the one that broke Pharaoh's back, which was the angel of death passing through Egypt and killing the firstborn of every household. But God, as we know from that story, provided grace for his people. The Jews, the Israelites, they deserved God's judgment just as much as the Egyptians. God did not love the Israelites because they were more lovable. He loved them because he chose to love them. And because he chose to love them, he gave them a covering, a protection when the angel of death passed through Egypt. They shed the blood of the Passover lamb, put the blood on the doorposts above and around the doors to the households of the Israelites. And when the angel of death passed through, killing the firstborn, he passed over by grace the households of the Jews those who were faithful to put their trust in the blood of the Lamb. And so, from that point on, the Lord said to the people of Israel, your firstborn belong to me. They deserve to die. I gave grace. I spared them by my grace. They belong to me. They are holy to me, as Luke quotes it here. And what that meant was if the firstborn was born in the tribe of Levi, which was the tribe of the 12 tribes that was set aside to be priests, if he was born in the tribe of Levi as a firstborn, he would go to the temple and serve in the temple the rest of his life. If he was born to another tribe, such as Jesus, born in the tribe of Judah, the tribe of David, if he were in another tribe, then the parents could go ahead and raise the child, keep the child in the household and raise the child if they were to pay a redemption price. 
And that's what the presentation of the infant was. You bring the infant to the temple and you pay the five shekels and you redeem, you buy back your child from service to the Lord in his temple so that your child can stay with you in the home, your firstborn can stay in the home. And that's what's happening here with Jesus. And as you think about that, how inappropriate it is for Jesus to be redeemed. How inappropriate it is for Jesus to have been circumcised, as we saw in the passage last time. Because all of these ceremonial laws that we don't continue to practice today, they were all fulfilled in the work of Christ, but they were only able to be fulfilled because Jesus was sinless. From the point of conception until the point that he breathed his last on the cross, he never sinned in thought, word, or deed. And yet, he was circumcised, he was presented, he was redeemed, he went through all the cleansing rituals, he followed all the laws of Moses. And remember when he came to John the Baptist, who was administering a baptism of repentance, and he came to John, and John said, you should not be baptized by me. This is inappropriate, Jesus. And Jesus says, let it be done, as it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. He even fulfilled the laws that applied to what his perfect work of redemption would, would satisfy the wrath of God, that he would take away the, the, the penalty of our sin and cleanse us by his blood. Even that, though that was true because he was sinless and righteous, yet he fulfilled even the ceremonial laws to fully identify with us as sinners. And that's what's happening here. The second ritual is the purification of Mary. And that's because when a Jewish mother was, gave birth to a boy, she was unclean, according to the law of God, for four, 40 days. That means she was ceremonially unclean, and she was not able to participate in the normal religious life of the people of Israel while she was ceremonially unclean. And then at the end of 40 days, she was to come to the temple, and she was to present a year-old lamb and a dove or a pigeon for sacrifice, for her cleansing, so that she could be restored to the full fellowship of God's people. What's interesting here is that it says that Joseph and Mary brought two pigeons or two turtle doves. They had the option of bringing just two, two pigeons or two turtle doves. That was something that the law allowed if the family was poor. Maybe not destitute, Joseph was a carpenter, but at least low class, poor. It was an identification of them and where they stood in, in society. And so they brought these to the temple so that Mary could be purified. Just out of, if you're curious, two pigeons at that time would have cost about one-tenth what a lamb and a pigeon together would have cost. So that's how much it would have saved the family. Now I want you to realize that these rituals were done in the temple every day for probably dozens of Jewish parents. And that as Mary and Joseph came to the temple in bringing this infant Jesus, nothing made them stand out as different from any of the other couples or any of the other infants. But God had prepared two witnesses. God had prepared two witnesses to give the significance of the presentation of the infant Jesus at the temple. To tell the world who this unique child was and what he meant for the destiny of all of us. And so as we look at this text, I want us to consider what do the eyes of faith, not what the physical eyes, but what do the eyes of faith see when they look at Jesus? 
as Simeon and Anna looked at him through the eyes of faith, guided by the Holy Spirit. As they approach the temple, they're approached by this probably older man, Simeon. And everything we know about Simeon comes from these few verses. It says that he was righteous, which doesn't mean that he was sinless, but it means that his life overall was characterized by faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. Secondly, he was devout, which speaks of his devotional relationship with the Lord, that he was a man of prayer, he was a man of worship, he was devout, faithful to the Lord in his relationship, pursuing the Lord by prayer and the word. And thirdly, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit so that he not only would recognize the Christ child, but that he would be given revelation to understanding who this child was and his significance. And matter of fact, it says in verse 26 that the Lord had given him a very special and unique promise that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. Can you imagine getting that promise? As a faithful, devout, righteous Jewish person in the first century to have the Holy Spirit say to you, you're going to see the Messiah before you die. It's like today getting a revelation from the Lord and say, you're going to see Jesus Christ return in glory before you die. What a great privilege was given to Simeon. At the same time, we also see farther in the text that an old woman named Anna also approached the parents. I don't know if she heard what Simeon said or she approached him without hearing what Simeon said. Either way, the Holy Spirit had confirmed to her that this was the Messiah that she hoped for. We're not given any words that she said, which is kind of ironic because she's the one who's called a prophetess. But that's what's striking about these first couple of chapters of Luke is that God is speaking to his people again. We talked about the fact that since Malachi, since the end of the Old Testament, God had been silent for 400 years. He had not spoken through any prophet for 400 years. But now, all of a sudden, in in chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, God's speaking all over the place. He's speaking to Mary and to Zechariah through the angel. He's speaking through Elizabeth to Mary. He's speaking through Mary to all of us in her prayer song. Speaking to all of us through Zechariah's song. God is speaking again through his people. Because something great is happening in their midst. It says that she was advanced in years. As a matter of fact, very advanced in years if you take it literally from the text. She was old. Now, the ESV takes the interpretation. Now, the wording of Luke is a little ambiguous here. And so commentators debate what Luke is really saying about her age. The ESV seems to indicate the idea that she was 84 that she was a widow, but she was 84 as he's writing about what happened here at the temple. Now, I had some older people in the first service who gave me a lot of grief for saying that 84 is very old. So, I said, you didn't listen carefully to the other possible interpretation, which is, as Luke records it here, is that she talks about her being a virgin, being married as a virgin, and as we saw with Mary, that probably was 13, 14 years old. Then she was married for seven years, and then became a widow after seven years. And then, possibly, you could interpret Luke to say, she lived for 84 years after that as a widow. In other words, she was 21, 21, 22 years old, and then lived 84 more years after that as a widow. It's possible that's what Luke is saying, and nobody knows. 
Luke was, for some reason, ambivalent there, I think, to make all 84-year-old people not feel so old, probably. But she is either 105 or 106, or she's 84. You know, take your pick, but she was old, is really the point. And she had lived faithfully as a widow all those years. Her defining characteristic is in verse 37. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. What a great tribute. Let that be written on your tombstone. She lived at the temple. Now, she's probably able to do that because the widows would have been cared for by the Levitical priests, as a biblical society would have. The widows were cared for. She didn't have to work. She didn't have to go out into the marketplace. So she was able to devote herself to worship, fasting, and prayer as a calling, as a life. And what an encouraging thing to all of us to know that no matter how much we may be limited in this world, whether by society or by physical ailments or mental ailments, whatever they may be, that God has a calling for us. God has a purpose for us. The world would have looked at Anna and said, you have no purpose. You're just a blight on society. You're just a drain on resources of our society. But God looks at her and says, here's a person who served me faithfully all these years, praying and worshiping and fasting and seeking the face of God and praying for the people of God and praying for the kingdom to come and praying for the Messiah to come. And God worked through her prayers and blessed her prayers. So we have here in the first couple of chapters of Luke, If you put all of these people together that are involved in and around the events and the birth of Jesus Christ, a picture of the faithful remnant within Israel. So much of Israel had turned to the emptiness of worldliness or the emptiness of of man-made religion. But as there always has been and there always will be, just as in the days of Elijah, there were 7,000 who never bowed a knee to Baal, there will always be a faithful remnant preserved by God who live by faith like Simeon and Anna live by faith, who trust in the promises of God. And that was Simeon and Anna. Well, what did they see? What did they see when they looked at this infant Jesus who looked no different than any other infant to the physical eyes? What did they see by faith? Well, the text tells us here the first thing that Simeon saw was salvation. Verses 30 to 32, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He looks at this 40-day-old infant in his arms, and he says, You are my salvation. What a statement of faith. You are my salvation because he believed the promises of prophets of the Old Covenant, and he believed the Holy Spirit when he said, this is the child who will accomplish all these promises. It's interesting to me that he equates salvation. We want to certainly run and jump to the issues of atonement, redemption, when we talk about what salvation is. But he equates salvation here with light and glory, which is for, as he says, all peoples, Gentiles and Jews. Light and glory. If you go to the rest of Scripture to say, what does he mean by light? Well, light means truth, revelation of of truth from God and life from God. That's light in Scripture. And glory is the presence of God. Glory is the shining forth of the greatness, the awesomeness of God. 
And that is the salvation that this child brings to earth, as Simeon declares it. It's the same thing that John is saying in, first, in John chapter 1 when he says the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Light and glory came to us in the infant Jesus. Light and glory. It's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews was saying in chapter 1 when he said, He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know God, you must know Christ because Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Or as Jesus himself would say very simply, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's what the faithful remnant see when they look at Jesus. Whether the infant Jesus or the adult Jesus, or the crucified Jesus. We see the salvation of God's people, light and glory from God. And we know that without Jesus, we are spiritually dead, we are groping in the darkness without truth, without answers, and we are lost, separated eternally from the presence and glory of God. The wisest philosophers in the world, the wisest philosophers of history are only groping in the darkness without knowing Jesus Christ because he is the answer to the universe. The second thing we see in Jesus by faith along with Simeon and Anna is that we see that Jesus is our destiny. In verses 34 and 35, Simeon speaks some very ominous prophetic words to Mary. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Many in Israel, interestingly, the visible church of that age, many in Israel are going to fall because they stumble over Jesus. He is the cornerstone laid by the Lord himself and many in Israel are going to stumble over him, reject him, and fall into ruin. But many are going to be raised because of him. And the word raised there in the original Greek is the word for resurrection. Many will be raised because of him. He is the dividing force of all history. Very similar to what Mary had said in her prayer or song back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 51. She said, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He casts down and he raises up. He is the most divisive figure in the history of the world. We think Donald Trump is the most divisive figure in the history of the world. He is not. Jesus Christ is the most divisive figure in the history of the world. If we can just look a little broader. He raises some up, casts others down. And it all comes back to whether you see by faith that he is who he claims to be and he did what he claimed to do. By fulfilling God's purpose for his life, his very unique purpose for life, Jesus would divide all humanity. As he said in Luke chapter 11, verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And he said in Matthew 7, that on that final day, judgment day, 
all mankind will stand before him. And all mankind will be divided in, in that passage, he says, based on one criteria. He will say to those, those who interestingly point to what they did in his name. Again, he's talking about those who fall in Israel, those who fall in the visible church. He's going to point to those who can't come claiming what all the things they did, and he's saying, I don't want to hear about what you did. What's really important is, did you know me? And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. But he's going to say to all who come and say, I know you, Lord. I know you by faith. You opened my eyes. You changed my heart. You showed me your glory. You drew me to yourself. I know you. He will say, come and enjoy my kingdom forever. The third thing that the Simeon and Anna and we all see by faith when we look at Jesus is the cost of our salvation. This salvation, which rescues us from darkness and death into the light of God's presence, only comes at the greatest possible cost. And that's what Simeon makes a veiled reference to when he talks about the suffering in Jesus, of Jesus. When he says, a sword, he says to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now he's talking directly about Mary's suffering, but he's talking indirectly about the suffering of her Messiah son that would bring the suffering to her soul. He's saying to Mary, you are going to witness the full fulfillment of the original covenant promise in Genesis 3.15 where God said to his people, the seed of the woman will be bruised, the heel of the seed of the woman will be bruised by the serpent, but then he will crush the serpent's head. Mary was going to witness this horrific bruising of the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the one who must suffer, the one who must shed his blood of the Passover so that that blood can cover us in our household to deliver us from eternal death. Mary was going to have her soul pierced. And I don't know about you, but I'd much rather have my flesh pierced than my soul pierced. He's talking about the deepest kind of pain. And I'm sure Mary thought of Simeon's words often as Jesus was rejected, denied, betrayed, beaten, crucified, and then laid in that tomb. But Simeon seems to understand that that was the only means by which this Messiah could provide the salvation for his people. He knew that Isaiah had promised back in chapter 53 that this suffering must come first. As Isaiah gives the word of God there, he says, He, the Messiah, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Simeon understood that the birth of Jesus alone, the coming of the Messiah into the world, the eternal Son of God, adding to his divine nature a human nature and dwelling in our midst and even living a perfect life, that was not going to save the people of God. 
It was going to take the death of that perfect Messiah on the cross in our place to bear the wrath of God that we deserve. That was what would provide salvation. Jesus Christ's purpose in being born was to die for us. And so I just want to come back and ask us to consider the perspective of Simeon and Anna. They lived by faith their whole life, waiting to see their salvation, to see the Messiah. And God gave him that glimpse of the infant as Simeon held him in his arms, the Messiah who would be their salvation. They put their trust in him. I reflect on that because so often when people want to know about you, to say, what's your purpose in life? Why are you here? What's the first question they usually ask you? What do you do? What do you do for a living? They want to know what your purpose is. They want to know why you're here. They want to know about you. They say, what do you do? And for a Christian, our answer must be, what I do is ultimately meaningless. It's what's been done for me. My purpose, my meaning in life, my whole end goal in life is about what has been done for me, not what I do. In the church which I served uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia for almost 20 years, early on in my ministry there, the leadership all got together and we asked that question, which churches, especially when they bring in a new pastor, a lot of times they do, they say, what's the vision of our church? What's the mission of our church? You know, come up with these statements to try to encapsulate in a memorable way what we feel the purpose of the church is. And we prayed through this and talked through it. And we came up with a phrase that I've continued to find helpful, not just for whatever church I serve in, but for my own personal life. We said that our purpose is to see, savor, and show the glory of God. Our purpose is to see, savor, and show the glory of God. And I felt like that was such a great summary of the purpose of any biblical church, which is to begin by seeing God's glory. And that encapsulates all of the educational ministries of the church, the discipleship ministries, the small group studies, the Bible studies, the sermons, the Sunday school classes, all of it has the purpose of enabling us to see more clearly by faith how glorious God is. To dig deep into the doctrines of the cross. To dig deep into the doctrines of resurrection, of the authority of God's word. To dig deep into these things so that we can see more of the glory of God's word, the glory of God's son, the more glory of God himself. Then, having seen the glory of God, what a born-again, regenerate heart does is worship, and that's the savoring part. Having seen God's glory revealed in his, in his truth of his word, we then savor that. We enjoy it. We revel in it. It's our greatest treasure. It, seeing God's glory is what we enjoy most in this life. And so as we enjoy his glory and are in awe of it, our natural regenerated response is to worship. And that encapsulated all the worship ministries of our church. And then we talked about showing God's glory. It is important that that come last in the equation. Having seen the glory of God, having savored it, to go out and show it to the world. Because there's nothing we love to do more than to show other people, to tell other people about the things that we've really enjoyed. If I enjoy a good movie, I want to go out and tell people about that movie. 
If I enjoy a great sporting event, I want to go home and talk to other people about how great that sporting event was. If I buy a new car, I want to go and talk to people about how great my new car is. That's what we do. And if you enjoy the glory of God, then witnessing becomes something that naturally flows out of your regenerated heart. And so all the outreach ministries were summarized under that phrase. We have a similar sort of statement here at Oakwood. We use the phrase, growing roots, bearing fruit, and branching out. Notice that the emphasis is on what God is doing. He is making us oaks of righteousness. He is causing roots for us to grow deep in his word, in our study of his word, so that we bear spiritual fruit of worship and fellowship, and then ultimately branch out in service. It's all praise and glory to God. What he has done for us, not what we do. And so I come back to that central question, what is your purpose in life? Why are you here? What are you trying to accomplish? Even as Christians, you can spout off the right spiritual answer. I want you to really look at your life and say, does my life reflect that? Because if you look more closely, what you'll find is that too often, just like the world, we live to have fun. We live, we work five days so that we can go out and have fun on the weekend because that's really what we're here for is to have fun. Or we live to make a name for ourselves. We, we live to earn these degrees and to get a great job and to put a title next to our name. That's what we really live for. Or maybe like much of this world, we live to find that right person, that love of our life. I swear when I listen to popular music or watch popular television or movies, it think, that's what most people live for, is to find the love of their life. And once they find the love of their life, they've met their whole purpose. I wonder how anybody lives past marriage if that's what they live for. What do you really live for? Why are you here? What's your purpose? Simeon and Anna were witnesses to the infant Jesus to say, here is your purpose. Seeing his glory, seeing him for who he is, and understanding why he was sent and what he came here to do. And as you see that glory and know it, you will grow. And as you grow, you will serve. The Westminster Shorter Catechism was a theological teaching tool that was come up with in the 1640s in order to teach the church the basic truths that God has revealed in his word. And they didn't mess around. They got to the issue right in question number one. What is the chief end of man? What's man's chief purpose? What's your ultimate purpose? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's your purpose. And it begins by looking to Christ, knowing Christ. By knowing Christ, we know God. And by knowing God, we find our purpose. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not leaving us in the darkness. Thank you for opening our eyes, for changing our hearts, for drawing us by your Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for showing us by faith, through your word, what is the purpose of his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And Lord, because we see these things by faith, we see your glory. And Lord, may we be changed by that experience. And may the world around us be changed because we've been changed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.